Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Council. I recently sat down with Trent Leon, Tyler Leon, and William Malloy, the managing partners at Tilden Capital, a private equity-backed minerals and royalty shop that is focused on the Permian Basin. During the episode, Trent, Tyler, and William walked through their experience in the Permian, including their recent partnership with Pegasus Resources and their current partnership with KKR. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what they had to say. William, Tyler, Trent, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Thanks for having us on. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. You bet. So would love a, a little background on, on the three y'all, when you met, how you got into the mineral space. So I guess we'll go down the line. William, if you want to kick things off, where you grew up, where you went to yeah. school, and then your role in the partnership is, right? How you got in the business. I'm William Malloy and uh, grew up in Dallas, Texas. Uh, went to UT down in Austin. After school, I'd been hearing a lot about Barnett Shale and, you know, these new shale plays that were popping up. I was thinking about getting into real estate, but, you know, I, I had an interview um, with a land brokerage here in Fort Worth and, um, you know, got the job, kind of hit the ground running and immediately really enjoyed just kind of the interacting with uh, with lessors. And, you know, we were taking 10, 20 leases a day, in some cases, paying ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 an acre to people in the city of Fort Worth, you know, Paulton, Arlington, all over, which sounds pretty crazy today, but that's that was just kind of the process. And six months into that, I got offered a job up in uh, the Marcellus, chased that for a little over a year, and then came back and uh, went out to Midland for a few years. So I had about four or five years of field land work experience before I went on to a kind of a tech company that had oil and gas clients. And we did a lot of uh, acquisition and investiture work for them. Dealt with a lot of, I guess, big data, which has been really applicable to what we do uh, in the mineral space. And it's made it a lot easier for us to take large amounts of uh, mineral owner data and be able to really target where we see opportunity. After a few years of doing that, that's when I met Trent and Tyler. Actually, I was talking to Trent late one night, and he said that him and Tyler had a strategy to essentially go try and duplicate their uh, Eagleford position, but potentially out in the Permian. I was really interested in that and thought we could be a good fit. So, William, at this point, you've had a couple of years of Permian experience under your belt. So you kind of brought that, yeah. that on-the-ground experience to the team, right, for the Permian to test that theory out? Yeah, definitely. Our original idea was to kind of dabble in the Eagleford, uh, see what we could do down there. It became pretty clear really quickly that it was going to be difficult to find a lot of arbitrage uh, in that market at the time. And so when we started looking at the Permian, specifically the Delaware, kind of caught our eye because there weren't as many players out there. I liked it from the tidal side because the Midland Basin was really chopped up from a tidal perspective. It, the first couple of deals that we did in the Delaware were really simple as opposed to the Midland Basin. And we found some traction over there and we stuck around for several years. So let me throw this one at you. So you, yeah. you kind of get into the Eagleford a bit later. It's a little more mature and picked over and prices are up. Sure. And you went to the Permian because there was you know, some more running room. The Delaware was, was a lot younger. You could make analogies Definitely. to that on the Permian today, right? That it's more competitive, 
more picked over? How do yeah, you guys I, see the Permian in, in today's lens? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. In today's lens, um, you know, with us coming back out of COVID, you know, something that we thought of or we really realized in 2015-16 uh, when prices were dropping was that most operators would still uh, develop their core acreage. And so you kind of see that again today where, you know, operators have left tier two basins and they are coming back into the Permian to drill, drill their core acreage. And so that's something that we have really stuck to for the last uh, six years is really just trying to focus on core acreage in the Permian up or down market. There's, there's still going to be activity. And so that's, that's where we find ourselves today. Okay. Good stuff. Well, Tyler, over to you. Yeah. So got into minerals, I guess a little bit of our background, thought I was going to be a pro golfer, play golf at Oklahoma State. Tried that for about four years. Didn't, that didn't work out. I actually went into the oil field service business, uh, working in frack and sales. Anyways, uh, we had a family uh, ranch uh, that had minerals and that kind of gave us a little bit of an insight into the business and uh, some of the benefits of it. And so when I kind of transitioned out of the service industry, which is a really tough but exciting industry, thought there was some opportunity in minerals. So started kind of dabbling in the business, trying to buy some minerals here and there and understand the value. And kind of once we did uh, and had a little success just privately, Trent and I decided to bring William on as a partner because it was great land experience. And, you know, about that time in 2014, the crash had hit, you know, kind of looked at Trent and said, man, I think when you try to take advantage of this opportunity and go by in the Permian, EOGs kind of slipped out there and they've done a hell of a job in the Eagleford. So anyways, we did. And we kind of bought out there privately for a while and then eventually teamed up with, you know, George Young at Pegasus and now with KKR. And that's kind of our background. Hey guys, I don't know about you, but as things start to get back to normal in our lives, it's been exciting to think about returning to good old fashioned face-to-face meetings, BD travel and networking events. Leading this charge on the events front is the team at Mark, whom I'm excited to announce is hosting their minerals conference in person at the Post Oak Hotel in Houston over April 19th and 20th. I've spoken with the Mark team and they've done a brilliant job setting up the venue to have indoor and outdoor seating in order to help facilitate a safer networking environment for everyone who participates. I can't wait to go and I look forward to seeing you there in person so we can catch up. If you haven't registered yet, then I implore you to do so by visiting www.mineralconference.com or by emailing the Mark team at info at mineralconference.com. Thanks, now let's jump back into the episode. Awesome. Now. You glazed over it, but I'd like to dig in just for a minute, just because I have a golfing background, and you guys are you guys are serious golfers. You play with with OSU. You're on the championship team. Would love you to name drop some of the guys who are on tour that you play with now, and just you know, for anyone who's listening, who's who's a golfer uh, or aspires to be, just any any quick war stories or background there, because that, that's a lot of fun. I mean, in, in the college game, you guys were at the top of the top. So I I played college golf, but. I'm a, a minion in comparison, right? I, I had a very, very modest career, but you, I mean, hats off for, from what I can see from afar. would love some a little, little stories there. Yeah, I appreciate it. That's very humble of you to say, but we basically, yeah, no, playing golf at Oklahoma State, I guess the one guy who ended up making on tour for my, my team, my generation, is a guy named Alex Noren, Swedish guy, uh, who's kind of been top 10 in the world here last few years. Uh, and he was actually our four man. He had a hard time, had a hard time qualifying at Carson Creek. But, man, he has turned it on. He was always a super talent, and he just kind of finally put it all together as a pro. 
and, you know, hats off to them. But yeah, going to Oklahoma State was an incredible experience. Uh, Mike Holder was a coach who'd been there 30 years, you know, not just national title after national title. And, and it was really an honor to play there, uh, getting around, be around Bob Tway, Burr Plank, uh, Hunter Mahan, all these guys, Charles Howell, they come back for the OSU golf reunion was, was really special. And so, I mean, playing there at a high level, you know, national championships were the only thing that mattered. I'll, I'll never forget my freshman meeting with Holder. We were talking about the big 12 championship for some reason. I think it was gonna be held close. And he's like, I was like, Oh, that's awesome. Do we get a ring? If we win the big 12 championship? Cause we had just gotten a ring for winning state and golf. And he's like, no, you don't get a ring here for winning the big 12. That's what you're supposed to do. We've won 20 of these. <laughs> the only thing you get a rank for is the national championship, and that's the only thing that matters. We didn't even go on the football field for winning the national championship. He said we're expected to win it. Yeah. <laughs> when I was there, that's crazy. This, this is Trent speaking. When I was there, Tyler and I won my freshman year. We're both in the starting five, which was really cool. Pablo Martinez was there. He won a European tour event that year as an amateur and was a stud. He's the number one college offer coming out. He didn't really – he won a few times the European Tour, but didn't make a big name. But my junior, senior year was me, Ricky Fowler, Kevin Tway, Peter Uline, and Morgan Hoffman. And I'm the only one that isn't on tour. Morgan would be on tour, but he's got some health issues. But everybody else has done really well. Um, what's pretty wild, my senior year, Inverness in Toledo, Ohio, we won the stroke play by like 15 shots. First year we had match play. Hudson Swafford signed for one too high. He signed for like a 77 and he shot 76. Well, that put, we were supposed to play AM and we ended up playing Georgia. Well, on that Georgia deal, Georgia team is Brian Harmon, Hudson Swafford, Harris English, Brian Harmon, and a guy named uh, Adam Mitchell. And Adam played on the Walker Cup. But out of those 10 players, five on each team, me and Adam Mitchell are the only ones that are not on the PGA Tour. So that wasn't that. And you they, know, they whooped us. <laughs> I couldn't hang with Russell Hanley. <laughs> you know, for people who can't really comprehend, I mean, how difficult it is to make it on tour and, and the fact that you don't sign a 10-year contract like you would in another sport. And it's only, what is it, 125 players on tour? And compared to the amount of players that are in the NFL or the NBA, I mean, it's it's brutal. But, I mean, listen, I think it's, I think it's super cool. And, by the way, so – is that Morgan Hoffman from New Jersey? Same Morgan Hoffman. I I, yeah, I played yeah. with. I was from Long Island, so we played together in a lot of stuff. He and won the freshman of the year that year. He's really good. He's got yeah, it. Yeah, and he. I remember he was in the Open a couple years back. But yeah, I heard he had some some back injuries. I think, but so that's that's sad to hear. But yeah, muscular dystrophy. I was actually texting him this morning. He's living in Costa Rica. He's got a great foundation, and he's been spending a lot of his time on that. He said he's trying to get his medical extended so he, he said he really misses the game so hopefully he gets back out there he's a hell of a talent a great dude yeah, no for sure yeah no it's kind of cool from my neck of the woods northeast it's always texas california florida boys that dominate so having him come out of uh, out of that corner was cool at that that level right but anyways well we, we could go on and on about this but uh, i just want to touch upon it because i mean you guys are are in a pretty elite class uh and so my hat's off to you it's pretty pretty awesome it, I actually felt a little embarrassed, right? When we met uh, originally in your office, you guys were, you had golf clubs in your hand, you were putting around on the floor. And I was like, oh, you play golf? And you're like, yeah, we play a little bit. And you're being, you're being kind of curt about it. And I was, I was like, yeah, I played in college golf. I was like, where'd you play? Oh, it's you. I was like, ah, oh, fuck me, right? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so, so back to minerals. Um, so, you know, Tyler and Trent, your, your family had a ranch in, in the Eagleford, right? So what the story that you told me was, 
you had kind of a, an education in minerals through the evolution of the Eagle Ford, um, just by having them as a family. And that is what tipped you off to maybe say, hey, let's go out to the Permian. We see some trends here and we can, can get ahead of it, right? You want to pick it up from there? Yeah. We were piddling around doing some service stuff down there and operating some wells. And we just saw the effort it took to, and the, the stress level it took from us on a day-to-day just to keep everything going. And But what was interesting with the Eagleford, when they really stepped into manufacturing mode and figured out how to drill those wells, it was costing them at the start, you know, 12, $14 million well, 5,000 foot laterals. And they really weren't using that much water, that much sand. And, but we, we, BHP and uh, Comstock, they had to share all the AFEs with us. And we watched those prices fall from those numbers down to eight or 9 million within, you know, 18 months, two years. And we saw that and Tyler's, big on just following EOG. We got DI accounts and uh, we saw what they were doing in Loving County. And we were just comparing their wells there in uh, McMullen and Atascosa and the wells in our ranch. And the big knock on the Delaware at the time was, I think it was costing like 15 million bucks to drill the wells. And everyone's saying there's too much water. And it just, you know, the Midland Basin is where it was at. And we liked the Midland Basin, but it wasn't attractive to us to go get a knife fight over 10, 15 acres at a time. And you go out and get hundred acre slugs, 200 acre, thousand acre deals in the Delaware. And we were paying, you know, a quarter of the cost in the Midland Basin. And so we weren't as necessarily as afraid of the well costs. We just were big believers that look, if EOG is doing it and these other operators, you had Concho out there that just over a short amount of time, they were going to figure it out and get those prices lower. So that's kind of what we bet on. And we just stayed as close as we could to the main guys, Concho and EOG, Anna Darko's rigs as we could and got into some pretty attractive prices in 2014 and 15. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and I think the part you said about the evolution that's really interesting is, so we got to see kind of the full cycle of, of pricing, you know, just from a leasehold perspective throughout the Eagleford and then also, you know, mineral offers being submitted to us and seeing that full cycle of, you know, what something's worth non-producing, what something's worth the couple permits what something's worth in you know the part when there's a ton of action going on and then the later stages when it's kind of been developed and so that gave us a really good fundamental understanding of values associated this just compared to the values we thought something was worth and and quite honestly there was a bunch of arbitrage at the price crash in the permian with something that had you know let's say six layers of of oil and gas, if you will, in the cake, instead of one, it was way undervalued. And so that's why we jumped out there. Yeah. And you mentioned the high water cut too. I mean, what was it? 2017, 18, when the third party water midstream models started to become a little more in vogue and a lot of capital flowed into that. And the Delaware became the best basin to go out and, and build infrastructure to service EMPs, which, which helps drive down op costs. Right. So, you know, that, that ended up not being as, as much of a, a hindrance um, and, you know, the rest of the the things that that need to happen for costs to be driven down, start to, to follow suit. So no, that's interesting. Now, William, you, you joined in 2014. So you guys are kind of buying on your own account for a while. When did the partnership with Pegasus start and a little backstory there, it ties back to golf, right? You knew George Young from playing at Shady in Fort Worth Love the backstory there and, and how that evolved. Yeah, George was looking for George was looking for leasehold in the Eagle for, for Silverback. And so we were just with our family's relationships, we were kind of showing them some leases that we knew that fell out. And 
fortunately for George, they're all too expensive. And so they ended up buying the asset from BHP and block four in Reeves County. And so while he was out there, we were plugging along, doing our own thing. And we tried to buy some minerals from George. We would just call him. He had some stuff in the milling basin. He would never sell it, but he's always nice to answer the call. And we tried to split some deals with him under Silverback. NCAP at the time wasn't wanting to put any mineral. They had a mineral team, but they weren't really focused on doing. They were just focused on operations. And then Tyler and I just saw that Silverback sold. And so we said, well, we need to go see George. <laughs> we're out of money. And uh, we needed a partner. Yeah, it was perfect timing. We kind of, you know, at that point, we had kind of got done with, our personal capital and we had bought and sold a little bit, but we were kind of like really saw the long, long-term opportunity and so wanted some more, uh, I guess, permanent capital, if you will. And just called George, and, you know, he had had a great sale in the Permian. and was like, man, I love the idea. Let's, let's go do it. I've got some extra cash. Let's play. So we pushed along a little bit longer with our own personal capital and another investor and it went great. I mean, we spent man, like 50 million in three months, four months. And, uh, we we're like, man, maybe this is circa 2016 ish. Yeah, 16 ish. And yeah. And so we we did it really fast and really quality assets. And we're like, man, okay, we can we can go huge. And at that time, NCAP had wanted to do another deal with George, which was great. And we just said, you know, let's just keep the band together instead of separating. And he's got a great technical team, been in the business a long time. And, you know, we had tons of land experience by minerals. We've been at it for two solid years by then, had a lot of deal flow. And so we did. We just continued on. And uh, in that relationship, and I mean, spent about $700 million in a little over two years together, primarily in the Delaware Basin. And it was, uh, it was a great run and uh, really bought some great stuff. Hey, guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at NobleRoyalties.com. I also want to thank Enverus, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. MineralSoft is Enverus's mineral management platform that enables owners to capture missing revenue and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is Enverus's platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enverus, Mineralsoft and EnergyLink, then please visit www.enverus.com or email businessdevelopment at enverus.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. Can you give a little bit more color on that, William, with a number of transactions yeah. and, and NRAs and, and just kind of the details where they broker deals, everything was organic, some packages, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. So of that 700, that, that covered approximately 350. Um, unique acquisitions. So we averaged somewhere around $2 million per deal. I think that our organic to brokerage ratio, I think we did about 95% ground game of that 700 million. We would still use brokers, still reviews, uh, review broker deals, but we just saw a lot more value in being able to negotiate deals ourselves. And uh, that, that's, again, that's still what we do today. 
No, that, that's fantastic. And, uh, you know, I think everyone's familiar with the Pegasus story and, and they're combining portfolios now on the mineral side for NCAP and are about to, to get really big, right? And so we'll stay tuned for the next chapter there. And just to clear up, so you guys didn't, you didn't wear a Pegasus hat, right? You were kind of the buying arm. You still wore the, the Tilden Capital hat, right? Just to, to explain and, and clarify that's, that for everyone. Yeah, we operated, you know, basically as a contractor, but we definitely... You know, it was very united uh, relationship. We shared an office. We weren't. We didn't do anything else. Yeah. And that was that was it. I, I'd say we bought 100% of the deals and, you know, we bought all those on the ground, but we would all huddle together on where we kind of thought we should focus on the best assets and deploying the dollars. And I think we're all pretty, pretty happy and excited when we were, when we had all that deal flow in the right spots. No, that's awesome. Um, so then, so that, that relationship kind of had its, Drew its natural course, right? So that was end of 2019 or early 2020. How did this all coincide with COVID? And then let's talk about your new partnership with KKR. So just kind of play out a timeline and and then we'll get into what you guys are doing now. Yeah. So we, we were coming to the, you know, the partnership had still been going great. Things were still start, starting to slow down because hell, we just bought so much and we were still looking at deals, but we just kind of thought, uh, you know, I think everybody was kind of like getting full. And so deals are getting pickier and probably knew it was going to focus more on just riding out that asset, and maybe slowly buying. And so at that point, it made sense for us, you know, to kind of look at each other and say, hey, it's probably for us it's time to go our ways and y'all go your ways. And, you know, it's been great. So we did. And Trent had a great relationship uh, with the guy over at KKR that we've known for a long time. And, you know, they've always had an interest in minerals and we had, They'd seen what we have done and talked about the strategy we wanted to continue to, to work on. And, and so they loved it and kind of talked about it not very long and, and signed up a deal pretty quick with those guys. And we've been buying from them for about six months now. Awesome. And it's, it's Permian focus, correct? Is it Delaware or Midland, Texas versus New Mexico, or what's kind of the mandate? Yeah, we're looking at the Permian. I mean, we've bought deals in New Mexico. We've been spending more time with Pegasus. We were more focused on the Delaware. Uh, now we're probably spending more time in the Midland Basin, but we are buying, we've bought deals in the Delaware as well. So it's kind of the same deal as Pegasus, just maybe a little more hyper-focused on, you know, that the basin's more delineated, you know, where the operators want to be. So we're just kind of trying to stay close to the rigs. No, that's fair. So, you know, one thing in, in this price environment, I, I don't know, I'm assuming you guys were using the technical team at Pegasus and looking at really good rock and you know, you're buying a lot of undeveloped stuff. Development time has been so hard to map out since COVID and then the oil price war hit last March. Everyone seems to be retreating to the core. Everyone wants, you know, PDP heavier assets, you know, depends on the development mix, but call it, you know, 25 to 50% PDP in a portfolio. Problem is, is everyone's doing it. So it's getting, you know, the room's getting smaller and it's getting more and more crowded. Have you guys gone about you know, combating that challenge? You know, Permian obviously still has the most rigs, the most upside, but it suffers from a bid ass spread still. You know, when you talk to KKR, just kind of you, you get in on Monday morning and, and get to the whiteboard. How do you go about approaching those things? It's a little bit of a weird time with the bid ask spread. You know, as Trent Tyler just uh, just described, there's still a little bit of a gap. It's coming. It's coming back, but. It's just been difficult when, you know, last January we're offering people, you offer somebody 20,000 royalty acre, this year you're offering them 12. 
WTI is the same price. It, it's just uh, it's hard for it's hard for sellers to really wrap their heads around the pace of development, spacing, other issues that are really how we underwrite deals, how they can so severely affect uh, the purchase price. So it's been it's been tough. And you know when these people have owned this acreage for generations, you know there's a reason why they still own it. It's, it's because they're not going to sell. Uh, in what they perceive as a down market. I, I think that's going to get better uh, here in 2021 as prices come back, and especially if the, uh, if the strip can match the spot price. Yeah, I mean, I think now, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's probably, the, it's probably been the hardest time to buy over, the, over COVID pretty much. And it's starting to normalize, I'd say, here a little bit. But just really challenging because of the severe price drop, rigs dropping off, and, and mineral prices are just sticky. You know, it, it has nothing to do with competition. It has nothing to do with anyone. Really, the stickiest thing is like, hey, I get a check and I don't have to work for it, so why am I going to sell it for a discount, right? And so sure. that fundamental situation there prevents deals from happening at depressed prices, which is also great because it keeps the value of your property up as well, right? So, you know, we've just we've taken the same tactic we always had to buying. Uh, you know, made a few tweaks, still try to see every deal possible out there. And, you know, you just keep trying to knock on doors. Uh, I, we're hoping the bid ask continues to compress and get tighter so we can get the volumes we had going again through 17 and 19 on buying. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we find arbitrage or KKR believes there's maybe there's more arbitrage than what we saw there. We'll go in and hammer those areas and really try to take advantage of that because you got to kind of strike when it's hot. And I think with with the partners we have now, it's similar to Pegasus having in cap. I mean, there's a ton of competition on a million dollar deal or $3 million deal. There's less competition on a 20 or $50 million deal. So we still try to look at those. And, you know, with Pegasus, we, I think we did three deals, two of them over a hundred and one around 50 million. And so those are the ones that really move the needle and we are able to get those deals done in a, you know, in a 30 day window, if, if we can find the right deal. I got a, a question just kind of at the top of my head here. So I've seen a trend. There's been on the broader oil and gas side, there's been some very senior investment professionals that were with your household names on the private equity side that left and and started energy and oil and gas investment divisions and in, in a traditionally generalist or non-oil and gas funds. You know, and the theory there is they're bringing their their IP on on the sector and their relationships over to a new fund and you have a clean slate. So when you're looking at investing at the bottom of the market, but you don't have to deal with any carnage in your existing portfolio, right? You're you're just starting by buying at the bottom and you didn't buy at the top and you're trying to reset a portfolio, for lack of better words. Uh, you guys are, are starting fresh with KKR, right? Because yeah, minerals don't have a cost call, uh, you know, a capital call nature. Do you think that same type of principle applies? Do you think a newer fund that hasn't bought anything in previous cycles is better positioned or really it really depends on the financial sponsor and their their bullishness in the current market on what they're willing to underwrite versus what has already been underwritten to date with the commitment yeah i think that's a uh, that's a good question i think having a clean slate you know in what again what many perceive as the bottom of a market is uh, is pretty awesome you know we have a legacy position and so we we know I would say some folks with legacy position might be able to redeploy cash flow. So that's that's something that's a little bit different about having a clean slate versus a por- portfolio, especially if they don't have debt. So they can grow grow organically that way. I, I do think that we 
having fresh capital and a lot of it in this market is eventually going to help us transact on a bigger deal. You know, we're just, we're trying to throw a lot of stuff at the wall and see if something sticks. And, um, you know, I think that, I think an opportunity will come up here uh, this year where we can transact. And, you know, on the deal mix going forward, 95% ground game with Pegasus. Do you foresee larger deals is a, a strategy, a formula for success, if you may, in this in this current market dynamic? Or do you think it's still the bread and butter getting on the ground, direct with landowners and a lot of, a lot of bunts, a lot of singles? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, something that's a little bit unique about minerals is, you know, not a lot of people lever up their ownership. So there's not a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of deals out there where they have to sell. People are opportunistic about selling. Your question about the the size of deals, though, we're we'll definitely review marketed and uh, corporate corporate deals. Because there, there is a lot of opportunity and we are some of the only people in the space with enough cash to go pursue those. So I do see a lot of opportunity there. I don't know how many of those deals are going to um, transact this year, like I said, because they don't necessarily have to sell. And you're hearing a lot about you know some of those groups trying to combine to go public and um, other ways to uh, crystallize their investment other than just selling to another, uh, another group. They're really sophisticated owners. They're they're they are out there, and you never you never know what position a family's in, or what they're thinking, or what they're talking about when they get together. So you just kind of you just keep building relationships. And but yeah, we are reaching out to all the major operators. We're reaching out to the major mineral owner. I mean, anybody that's got over twenty acres in a section, we are reaching out to them. I don't if it's Exxon or uh, <laughs> John Smith. I mean, we are talking to them. Yeah. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalties space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. I also want to thank Enveris, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. MineralSoft is Enveris' mineral management platform that enables owners to capture missing revenue and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is Enverus' platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enverus, MineralSoft, and EnergyLink, then please visit www.enverus.com or email businessdevelopment at enverus.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. You know, one, one thing that you hear whisperings of, whether it's guys who raise money from high net worth or guys who are buying minerals from high net worth is what's going on with potential increases in capital gains tax. Have folks looked at selling assets before an increase? I, I believe that they're set to increase next year, February, 2022. Don't quote me on that, but you know, have you seen that kind of bleed into the conversations that help stuff shake loose is looking at the new administration and implications on on their broader portfolio i know 
some groups are looking to diversify for other reasons. I know the the GameStop situation in the stock markets freaked out a lot of high net worth individuals and they're looking to reallocate their portfolios because of that. You know, Bitcoin, I can just throw out a bunch of random things, but have, have any of these macroeconomic factors made a difference or come up in conversations, especially with more sophisticated landowners that may be harder to, to get a sale from, but you've developed a relationship over the years from meeting with them and talking with them? I would say, I mean, I think the COVID scare and obviously the ripple effect that occurred in the market definitely made people think, and, and obviously this whole, the, the biggest thing is obviously this whole new green energy wave, right? So I think it definitely has people a hair uneasy on like, man, is there really a forever? And uh, which creates opportunity, but still just not really willing to give it, you know, I'm saying give it away that what they say is giving it away. They still want a higher, higher price. And, you know, most of these people in the Permian, you got to remember that people that are still owning assets in the Permian have said no to prices for that. Like guys like us have been offering for the last five years, which have gotten really, they've gotten really strong. So they're very determined to own that property for whatever reason. And they've had oil and gas happen for many generations. And so I'd say, I'm saying all that because I think I would say about, I would call it 10% of the people I've dealt with have kind of had one of those reasons for maybe looking at selling. I'd say mm-hmm. still 90% is kind of like, I'm good. Or the price yeah. is good. You know, you know what I mean? They're just stickier on some fundamental, none of that really matters. And and on the, the tax deal, I mean, when Trump ran last time, that people were saying the same thing, tax going to raise if Trump doesn't win. That market, that might start affecting the market maybe in November yeah. or December, but it's not in all the headlines right now. Yes, mm-hmm. they've talked about tax increases, but they'll start focusing it towards the end of the year is what our experience in the past was. So, I mean, we've really been amazed. We've talked to several large families, uh, mineral owners, sometimes here in California and expecting them to be like, oh, you know, probably need to divest some fossil fuels or uh, back in the Northeast stuff, you know, because you hear of all these stories and they have no interest. Yeah, I mean, they're, my, they're really happy with their checks. Yeah, my biggest argument to every mineral owner, probably I need to look at myself in the mirror, <sighs> But it's, we're paying we're paying ordinary income in these royalty checks. And you're paying forty percent ordinary income, and they're they're great checks. But to have to give away half of what you're making when you can sell it at a fair price or above market, because all of us are chasing the same thing. You know, it, it only pay twenty percent in taxes on it. I mean that it does amaze us. Most people don't don't see that, but I think I think you know. That in a weird way, the toughest part of shale is that with the checks being so front end loaded, I mean, when you get a, a large check, it's kind of like, you know, it's going to go down, but you just don't realize how dramatic it's going to go down. It's like, I'm not selling. Hell, I've never made 50000 a month yeah. or 200000 a month. And that's the other thing that we're competing against today. You had COVID, the price dropped. Now prices are increasing. Rig counts haven't increased with those prices to the extent to get back to where the prices were pre-COVID. But what we're also battling is production. And almost every section has had a well on it now in the Delaware. A lot of them are multi-well sections. The Midland Basin, you get a pad on you. I mean, so they've had a taste of these new wells now. Yeah. And you're not going after anybody that's really non, non-producing. non If it is, it's probably something we don't want to buy anyways. So that's really hard to compete against. And that's only going to keep tightening as they drill more wells. And honestly, like you said, Bitcoin, the, the thing that would really shake deals loose is, I mean, quite honestly, savings accounts going up. 
Because most of these people, when they sell, they're not thinking, oh, I'm going to put it in the market and I'm going to make 20% or mm-hmm. 10% or I'm going to buy Bitcoins going up or I'm going to buy, you know, they're thinking, okay, if I take this and I put it in the market and I make, or if I, you know, I put it in something very safe and make 2% or 1% or 3%, I make this, you know, and I'll be okay. And that's just not available right now, really. Yeah. So it, you think if, if interest rates go up, you think that could cause be a trigger for some people to let stuff go because then they can park it in kind of safer securities that are more stable. Yeah. They get they get their payday and then they can you know cruise off into the sunset type deal. That's right. That's right. Because you know if you think about it, most people own this or or land driven right or heirs of people who are land driven thinkers, and so it's a pretty secure bet and they've obviously been rewarded for holding it. So yes, I think if interest rates rise. And you're able to still pay, so you would need oil and gas prices to rise. You know, I think, and you can still offer, let's say, a twenty thousand acre number or whatever. Yeah, I think you have more people sell because they're like, okay, I could tuck that tuck that away in a three or four percent savings account, and I'm good. Yeah. A lot of the people that we talked to that aren't like the oil and gas guy that kept an override, or that's right. I mean, when we were like really hammering stuff in New Mexico, a lot of those people live in Roswell and Artesia, and they don't have the access to deals out of. And they're sharp guys, right? But they're not in Houston or Dallas or New York or wherever. And their network's a lot different. I was like, so I sell you this deal for $3 million. And I, I go buy like a metal building and a tire shop or something. And, and Artesia. <laughs> and Artesia. And it's like, well, I'd rather own these rides. <laughs> and uh, right. it's far enough not to get screwed either, right? You're not there just to be like, oh, I'm going to give it to some real estate promoter out of Dallas they have nothing about. So they're not going to do that. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, on the interest rates too, what's interesting is, as interest rates go low, you know, for funds who are looking to access capital, minerals are really attractive because it's alternative asset class for yield. But then as interest rates go up, does some of the money dry up? But then that triggers a sale of minerals. And it's kind of like when that seesaw happens, who has dry powder and can capture that window of opportunity, right? I think that's an interesting, you know, bubbling point. It will be see, we'll see how that plays out. I'm very interested to see it. I mean, because really, if you think of any industry that is not really reaping the rewards of low interest rates, it's the mineral royalty world. I mean, for this stuff to trade at 7 to 10% yields on the public markets, when you have public REITs at all-time high, replacement values on the real estate side, you know, tech companies, all these things at all-time highs because low interest rates, how the hell is there something that's undervalued in a down market at a 7% to 10% yield? Well, and then the biggest- like, That's incredible. Yeah, and the biggest scare since all these, since COVID, you were talking about inflation risk. I mean, well, here we are in the mineral space. It's pretty good inflation risk. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and it kind of goes back to, we just had a, another round of stimulus checks, right? So going back to the macroeconomic implications, there's a lot of concern that US dollar is going to, be devalued quite a bit, all the money that's being printed. So yeah, minerals are a good, you're a good hedge on that, right? It being a real asset. So the appetite for that should increase. That's right. Well, good stuff. Well, you know, last thing I want to touch on before we go is just New Mexico. You guys have bought a lot in New Mexico. There's obvious sensitivities right now with, you know, Biden coming in and the the moratorium that was 60 days, which I believe now has been lifted, which is a good signal. You know, some people are pretty cynical and that, you know, have worked Fedlands multiple decades on the operating side, whether, you know, in different parts of the country that have a lot of battle scars and just, they say, man, when you deal with the Fed, it is, it is a, a gruesome battle and, and it's painful until the administration changes. You know, others, others say, well, you know, New Mexico's 
state government is so reliant on oil income, they have to play down the middle of the fairway. And, and then, you know, supplementary to that argument, it's Biden was just appeasing his base when he came in and he got some low hanging fruit, you know, Alaska, Gulf of Mexico, you know, a moratorium on, on Fed lands. But if you're an optimist, you say he's not really going to do much more and he's going to back off a little bit. I, I don't know. What, what do you guys see with New Mexico? Window of opportunity or? Yeah, I think Trey and I probably got a lot to say on this. I mean, my do another podcast. My, you know, we were obviously a little nervous about it going through the worst phases of the commentary coming out of the Biden administration and even the state of New Mexico. One thing that really made us feel good the other day was the the state's governor of New Mexico, who had been pretty quiet through this whole issue, and we didn't really know where she stood, came out and basically asked to start having, you know, lease sales again and to the Biden administration. She's a Democrat. And I thought that was really telling because quite honestly, where their remaining lease sales are are not like massive dollar per acre type lease sales. Like a lot of that's already gone. The yeah, core. the good stuff has been has been leased for the right. most part, right? I mean, right. So for her to be worried about lease sale revenue and us guesstimating what that dollar is, she's obviously concerned about revenue. So the thought of taking that a step farther and doing permit bans and you know moratoriums on drilling, stopping fracturing, if she's worried about lease sale revenue, I mean, she would pretty much pass out at the fact of you know all the other I just talked about occurring. The downdraft in revenue, if that occurred, would be colossal for the state. And so I think that's nice that she said that. Then two, I think we're kind of seeing it out of the Biden administration. I think the reality, uh, and I hope as they go through it and really look at the numbers of trying to do their Green New Deal and everything else, like they need all the revenue possible. So the worst thing they can do is just crush another industry and like Trent said, raise oil prices, which is bad for them anyways. I think things are heading in the right direction. And I think New Mexico, you know, for all the negatives we've heard recently is is definitely a place to do business. And then the last thing I'd like to say is compared to all these other Western states, you have the biggest of the biggest U.S. operators. We have Chevron, Exxon, you know, Devon, EOG. You have guys who are really massive, who have dealt with international governments, who are always talking to the government. And that gives me some, yeah, some, you know, good feelings that they can get something resolved. What, what I'll add to it is, and we're biased, but those companies, Tyler just mentioned, the amount of dollars in infrastructure and wells that have been spent in the last five years is astronomical. But I sit here and look at ourselves and we're looking at deals all the time. And we keep getting pulled to New Mexico and it's we get pulled to New Mexico because of the returns, because of the EURs, because of the well density. And that it's not there's nowhere else in the Permian Basin or in our country where you can buy minerals like it is in southern New Mexico or federal overrides. And that market and I just sitting as an operator they're return driven. Their best returns are is right there in Southern New Mexico. It's not a huge area. It's not a big swath like the Midland Basin, but the best returns in the Permian are in Eddie and Lee, Southern Eddie and Lee. And so they're going to get pulled there. They have a lot of capital spent there. Even in, during the worst times, the moratorium, Tyler and I are sitting there contemplating paying a big number on for something in Southern New Mexico, just because of the reasons I just said, and playing there instead of the you know, Midland and Martin, because we like the returns better. So I like to think these big operators, they're, they're having the same discussions and that's the best returns in the country. Yeah. The only thing, is, you know, when you make the argument of, you know, I think the, the argument on the big operators having a bit of sway, I think is a valid point. But when you look at just signals from the state government and the reliance on the income, you know, in private conversations I've had, you know, and I quote, Tim, 
Washington, if they have a larger political agenda, will sell New Mexico down down the road in a heartbeat. They don't give a shit. So to think that the state government has more sway than than Washington, if a broader, you know, if you look at just the game of politics and, you know, you have your political capital to spend to get certain initiatives pushed through, if it's the wrong combination of stuff and, you know, for, for whatever reason, you know, New Mexico falls by the wayside in this guy's experience, that's not out of the cards. I don't know. It's, it's pretty pessimistic. I prefer to go to bed at night thinking the way you guys are thinking, because, you know, you got to be positive and, yeah. and hope for New Mexico to, to stay strong. But yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? Only time will tell, but they could just write him a check five billion a year for the next 10 years. And yeah. The, the rate our federal government's going, that's just absolutely nothing. So they could do that. I wish they would do what you said and just sell New Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> sell the southern part. If they ever, if Joe, if you're listening, we, we're interested in making an offer on southern New Mexico. All your fed land. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Well, guys, this has been uh, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for, for coming on and, and you know, just talking shop around minerals and, and about what you guys are up to at Tilden. Good luck with the new partnership at KKR and Good luck deal hunting, right? I hope to yeah. see some press releases and, and some good stuff going forward. We appreciate it, Tim. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks, Thanks for having us on. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Council represents the largest network of senior minerals and royalties-focused executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our royalties clients to help them place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about how we can help your team, then please email me at tim.powell at energycouncil.com or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com forward slash minerals dash royalties dash council forward slash. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks and see you next time.